Good morning. Today we're moving to the next step in our process we call the spin cycle. The spin cycle is found in 2 Peter 1 and it was written by the Apostle Peter. And he says, add to your knowledge self-control. Now to understand the fullness and context of what Peter's asking us to do there, you need to understand his background and you also need to understand his audience. Peter would have been coming from a Jewish background and his audience, many of them, would have been coming from a Hebraic background, which meant that their first uh, taste of education would have been with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, starting with Genesis. And they were taught in, a, in this system of Hebrew school that your intellect and your intellectual capacity actually determined your values. So what you could attain meant that you got to go on to further schooling. And so when I said last week that knowledge is power, they really taught them, it had been ingrained in them, that academic consumption was power that you could wield over others. But that is not, in fact, the knowledge that Peter is talking about here. What he's saying is we can consume facts, and that's okay, but that's not the point. The facts that we gain about God should inspire us. They should amaze us. It should be awe-inspiring when we learn of His unconditional love his, his person, and His competency. It should inspire us to a place of action. And so what Peter is saying here actually is using the word knowledge uh, more in the sense of the way that Genesis 4 does. And he goes right back to their educational system. He says, like Adam knew Eve, his wife. He's talking about the word he, the Hebrew word yada, which means to know on an intimate or an emotional level. He's not asking us to repent of consuming facts that we can wield over people through information transfer because we arrogantly are more educated. He's saying the knowledge that we have of God should lead us like Eve was led to Adam at a place of emotional and intimate and raw uh, platform. It should lead us to a place of vulnerability emotionally where we lay barren before him as his bride and we allow our, our husband, the master, our savior to lead us and have his way with us, joining him as a partner like Eve was to Adam in his will and in his way, putting aside our agenda because we know the person of Jesus, we know his love, we know his desire, and we trust him implicitly. So we are inspired to allegiance and we are inspired to action because we have a knowledge of who Jesus is on an intimate and emotional level. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 34, 8, that this is all about experience, that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. Blessed is the one who sets up shop, who establishes or abides in the covering of their Maker, their Lord, Jesus. So he says that you experience that He is good. So I want to bring up the spin cycle again really quick. Again, just kind of deciphering. The knowledge we're repenting of is that academic consumption of facts that we used to feel more educated that never transfers to the heart and we wield over people through information transfer. But the knowledge that we do attain of Jesus and his love all inspires us because his love being unconditional, his competency being perfect is far different than our broken condition. And so instead of spinning out at knowledge just to know more, we take the power of knowledge and it leads to uh, action. It awes us to 
uh, apply and transform at our very person. I want to give you uh, a, an illustration to what the psalmist, what Peter, what Paul has said to us in Romans 12. And this illustration is that we are to experience God. Now, this illustration is all about experience. I am someone who, when I take a trip with my family, will try to seek out a Chick-fil-A. The reason is because when you're on the road, it's really difficult to find uh, a fast food establishment and eat on the road in such a way that you're not going to hate yourself in a month for it. At least Chick-fil-A gives you options that are somewhat healthy. My daughter happens to love Chick-fil-A. It's her favorite, and I call it Jesus Chicken. But when we stop at a Chick-fil-A, it never fails. There is always a line because we're not the only ones frequenting that Chick-fil-A. Everyone else had the same idea. There are, there's always a line no matter where we stop or when we stop, we're always going to have a packed experience at Chick-fil-A. Why? Well, it's not because we know a lot of cool facts about the origin or inner workings of Chick-fil-A. Honestly, we don't care. We don't show up to Chick-fil-A because when we get there, we're imagining that it's 1946 and we have been transported to the very dwarf house that was the first place of establishment that the Cathy brothers opened and, and it was this place that they came up with their famous recipe for the thing that put them on the map, their Chick-fil-A sandwich. We don't have any of those things go through our minds. Many of us have no idea where that original Kathy establishment is in Hatefield, Georgia. We don't know where that is, and we don't care. We do not enter Chick-fil-A having memorized the, the uh, recipe, to, or the secret recipe, actually, to the very sandwich that made them famous back in 1964. And we don't recite it to its employees to hold them accountable as they fix that recipe in measure. <laughs> Nor... Nor do we look at the employees at Chick-fil-A, wherever we stop, whenever we stop, and recite to them that the, the A on, in Chick-fil-A actually has a meaning. That it's not just a funny marketing uh, term or a, 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 a funny way to misspell the word filet, that the A in Chick-fil-A is actually intentional. It stands for grade A quality, which means that in service or in product, they expect to give excellence, which is why so many people frequent Chick-fil-A, because that's what they've experienced at Chick-fil-A, that it's more than just a funny marketing scheme. We, we, we don't go to Chick-fil-A because they spend more money on sun-kissed lemons than any other company in all the world to make their famous lemonade. We, we don't frequent Chick-fil-A because they use more peanut oil than any other company in the U.S. to get that golden brown texture on that, on that buttery chicken crust. We, we go to Chick-fil-A... I, I, you know, I really wish, I really wish that this was like Willy Wonka's ch Chocolate Factory where they introduced smell-o-vision, right? Because you could, like, I open this bag and immediately I smell this. It's part of the experience. It's not just that you can see it, like I can smell it. And it, it, it makes me hungry, like I crave more. And we don't go to Chick-fil-A 
One more, one more. Just humor me. I know it's a bit exhaustive, but that's my point. We don't go to Chick-fil-A, and people don't frequent Chick-fil-A every time, no matter where we stop or when we stop. They're not busy because I call it Jesus chicken. Or everyone there has a lot of historical facts about the inner workings of where Chick-fil-A came from. We go to Chick-fil-A because of this. This is why. Yeah. Like, that is why we go to Chick-fil-A. And we go back continually to Chick-fil-A because it's good. Here's the thing. I know what you're thinking. Like many of you right now go, well, thanks, Justin. Now all I can think about is Chick-fil-A, and I want Chick-fil-A, and it's Sunday. They're not even open. Well, you're welcome. And the reality is, you know, there's another saying. They say that good things come to those who wait. And it will be open tomorrow morning, so you can be first in line. And if you are from Chick-fil-A and you happen to be watching this, uh, my email is justinlet at thefellowship.cc. For the product placement that took place today and an endorsement deal that I can smell, you should hit me up. However, for those who are listening and they go, I just can't wait till tomorrow to get Chick-fil-A. I'm craving it so bad. Slim Chickens is actually open on Sundays, and arguably it may be better. So those from, Chick- from Slim Chickens... You can also hit me up at justinlet at thefellowship.cc because I just lost the endorsement deal I just spoke of with Chick-fil-A, so you call me and we'll talk. Reality is this. We don't go to Chick-fil-A because we have memorized a bunch of historical facts or even current facts about Chick-fil-A. We go to Chick-fil-A because we've experienced the product and we know that it is good. We trust it. People will not experience the one true God, our God, when we spit a bunch of historical facts from memory about him at them. Even though those facts are true and right and they're powerful, then they may be good to know. It's actually a discipline that is applied in self-control to memorize and meditate the things that are true about Scripture that reveal who God is in the man of Jesus. They'll experience him when they can see in his people a trust of him that lets him lead them wherever he would like to. A a people that are partnered with him in whatever he desires to do. They'll trust him when when we trust him because of the experience we've had and those those experiences have led to a trust that emboldens the facts that become truths for other people, that they become aware of who he is. They gain knowledge of who he is and how good he actually is. Truth is, do we trust God on that kind of level? Someone says, hey, let's go to Chick-fil-A. We immediately jump in the car without debate, without thinking about it, we go. We know it's good, we like it, we trust it. God says, do this, and we allow it to run through a litany of deliberation, discussion, and debate. Do we, on the same level and with the same guttural response, an immediate response due to our trust in Him and our trust in the person of Jesus, His character, His perfect competency, His plan, His love for us, His loving plan for us, that His ways are better than ours? Do we immediately respond to Him without debate, like we would if someone invited us to Chick-fil-A? 
This is all about experience, and it's all about the amazing experience we've had by the goodness of God. That the knowledge of God's goodness makes us feel overwhelming awe. And that we can and we should know facts about God. These affirm His very character and that competence we talked about. Our experience, our trust of Him expresses how those facts make us feel and lead us to truly experience Him on a real level, an intimate level, an emotional level like Eve knew Adam. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, gain a new perspective, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Just like Peter is about to say here in our verses today, Paul is saying, let the knowledge of God and how different He is than your imperfect existence change you from the inside out and change you into His very image so that others might have hope Because they see his behaviors and they see his very likeness in you. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 14 says this. And these are our verses for today. We're going to have three points that come out of them. We're going to try to walk through them very quickly. It says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. This word, therefore, starts this entire first two verses. It beckons that we read the verses that come before it because, therefore, beckons response. It, res- it means action. It means that we have come to a place with our minds being fully alert and sober that we are entirely convinced. The first point is that we believe. That our minds are alert and sober, meaning with a certainty and an assuredness that we are completely convinced. And that has led us to an allegiance which is leading us to behavior modification, which is leading us to act differently, to act like the one we've trusted in. So if you read the verses before this, therefore, you're going to find all the joyous example that Peter speaks of and the knowledge of knowing Jesus, how that beckons emotional joy and response and freedom in his people. And he says, therefore, because you're assured of that, it should give you hope. It should change, it should not only enlist you in allegiance and action, but it should give you hope. And this is the hope. This is the action. It is a bewilderment. As amazed as we are at the love of him and that he would be that he would give that to us. He says, let this amazement compel you. The word here, hope, in the Greek that is used means to obligate. But it isn't the obligation by which we ascribe legalistic behavior. This isn't the kind of obligation that we, we uh, do because we feel obligated to. It's not that you have religious activity or you make your hands and feet do a certain thing because you were told to. It's a, this is used by Peter in the sense of compulsion. It's an obligation just like that of Jesus in John 4 when he says that he was compelled to go through Samaria. When all other Israelites would have avoided Samaria, adding a week to their journey because they had no dealings with Samaritans. They had a prejudice against them. They hated them. They thought God hated Samaritans. But it says Jesus said he was compelled to go through Samaria in John 4 and that he must need go through because he had a divine appointment. 
he was going to meet, save, and set a revival with the Samaritan woman at the well, someone who was otherwise ostracized by society and even had started to devalue herself because she felt that she was unlovable. It says that just like Jesus was compelled to go and have that divine appointment with her and to see her life completely change and people around her's lives completely changed because the awe she experienced by the person of Jesus is what should compel us to move and act in the same way. It speaks of an obligation that can be perceived in one of two ways. This is the renewing of the mind. See, we hear the word obligation and we feel like it means legally forcing. But he's talking about a grateful indebtedness, much more like Isaiah wrote of in Isaiah 6. The difference comes from a perspective that we gain from our awe or a personal amazement at a person or a situation. In this situation, it's of Jesus. So give me, let me give you an example. If I show up at my house with flowers and whether I've purchased or picked them for my wife and I ring the doorbell, she comes to the door and she melts. She sees these flowers as I pull them out from behind my back, and she goes, oh. She goes, why, why did you do this? And I go, I had to. Now, see, that's going to lead to a completely different reaction, a, a one that I don't want, a response for the night that I'm not looking for. If she knows that my action was tied to a calendar date because it was an anniversary or a special holiday, or it was tied to get myself out of trouble that I've previously dug myself in, then it holds really no value. It's, uh, I'm obli- it's obligatory. I'm obligated to try to fix things. But if there is no calendar beckoning this kind of action, and I look at her and I pull out those flowers, she goes, why did you do this? And I say, I just cannot stop thinking about you. I did this because I wanted to. That beckons a response and an action and sets off a night far more like I hoped and intended. I am gratefully indebted and I love her, so I seek to serve her. Peter's saying that I am so incredibly moved and grateful for Jesus that I cannot do anything other than hope on the empowerment given me in Jesus' Holy Spirit to accomplish what I otherwise could not in my own limited strength and existence. Changing our perspective on the matter changes our behavior on the matter. That's why Paul said, be renewed. That's why Peter and Paul both said, do not conform. So our last point here is behavior. That our belief leads to a bewilderment that changes our behavior. Paul instructed in Romans 12 too that we be transformed, literally changed from the interior altogether. Not simply acting out of mimicking a religious activity that we have seen or superstitiously like trusted, will keep God's wrath at bay from us and simultaneously welcome His blessing. This is the kind of legalism that is not, let me say that clearly, not a relationship with Jesus. This is not a partnership with God. This is self-worship. This is self-advancement, drowned and cloaked in fear of God smiting and cloaked in false humility and false faith. This is religiosity that, that Peter and Paul and all those who like him and we like ourselves were saved from, a religious system that was based in facts and false worship, religious activity that hoped to beckon God's favor. You cannot beckon 
God's favor when you already have it. That's what Peter's trying to enlighten us to. So Peter instructs, instead of being compelled to act and not make our response in our awe and amazement to God's love solely in an event and solely uh, event-driven, let your compulsion to worship Jesus become a daily walk within you with the application of self-control or spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, which we just talked about in our last series, Disciple Culture. Daily spiritual practice that serves as a trellis, a foundation for which in John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, that can foundationally send life to the branches, his people, us, in order that we bear fruit of his spirit, spiritual fruit that we can't bear on our own. We, this is how we become, that we submit to his spirit and let him have his way. Versus simply having a spiritually awakening experience in a moment, like camp or revival or the like. And then bottling that experience, putting on the shelf, and then seeking to break it out momentarily when we need a spiritual high in the future. Like spiritual junkies or cheerleaders doing no more than looking for our Jesus pep rally in order to get a fix. Never having embraced the very new life that we have in Him. We conform to that chasing of a high rather than transforming into the image of Jesus. We worship that experience in that moment rather than worshiping the man of Jesus. This is a dangerous practice and a falsified practice that many of us have embraced in America that unfortunately is giving us a false sense of salvific assurance. We are not walking with the Lord. We are chasing mountaintop experiences. The amazement and awe of God is very much a part of the authentic process for us to transform into the likeness of His image because it is so starkly opposed to our natural human limitations. Yet if we spend our days only chasing these moments of spiritual enlightenment rather than the person of Jesus, then we are not, let me say it again, we are not truly His disciples. So Peter demands self-control to channel our all in order to become more in his image and more less and less like our old selves, more reflecting who he is and that power and love coming through our lives. It comes out as we apply and submit to his spirit, bearing spiritual fruit of, of his life when we practice solitude, when we practice slowing down, when we practice Sabbath and we seek him. And his whisper for us in the silence, instead of just looking for him in big displays of the miraculous that pronounces power, that we walk with him on the regular. This is all about experience. And in conclusion, today, it's really important what we do with this experience. It determines our development as true disciples. If we continually spin out at self-control due to our awe, we become nothing more than inspirational disciples, not true disciples of Jesus. I'm going to ask for that graphic to come back up. So much like we talked about last week, if we spin out at knowledge, continuing to become scholastic or solely academic disciples, we never move through the process of transforming or becoming. The same is true. If we do allow that knowledge to all inspire us to the place where we get to self-control, if we, if we spin out here and we never apply the self-control that Peter's told us to so that we can move to action and we have a walk versus just event-driven spiritual highs where we're seeking Jesus in a pep rally, then we'll only become inspirational disciples. 
cheerleaders, if you will. We never allow ourselves to complete the process of becoming fully devoted disciples of Jesus. And thus we become what 2 Peter 1.8 was the warning, unfruitful and pointless in our knowledge of Jesus Christ in His life and what He did for us. So today, what do we do? What is our response? Well, we need to repent of just treating Jesus like an event and chasing Him like we are in uh, seeking Him in a revival, like running to mountaintop experiences solely, seeking Him at camp. And we need to do it in a few ways. Number one, we need to evaluate. Today, where is the joy of my salvation? Does, is it still intact? Does it, does it exist? Am I still amazed at the reality that Jesus would love, would come and give His own life to save a wretched and selfish sinner like myself? That He took upon Himself what I could never fix because He loved me. It beckons I evaluate that my knowledge of Jesus and His love compel me to worship in awe and apply self-control. I mean, does it beckon me to walk with Him in applying spiritual discipline or practices that allow me to abide or take refuge in His very person and not simply chase the miraculous things that He can do? That I want Him and not simply what He can do for me. That I'm not finding myself caught up in a bunch of historical facts, but my life because those facts are true and they embolden my trust and faith, they get expressed in my life and they, they beckon allegiance and action for me. And today, if you're like me, a little heavy-hearted for the current state of affairs in our world, and today, you just need God to do the impossible. Maybe you personally... Or on a societal level, you believe we need a miracle. Can, can I invite you to email us? We would love to pray for you. We would, love, we would love to take your need to the healer, to the one who truly came to fix it all. And you can email us at prayerthefellowship.cc. We would love the opportunity to just beg him on your behalf to intercede for you. And if you want to know more about the person of Jesus himself or how you can take the next step in following him, we'd love the opportunity to minister to you. He changed everything for me in my broken world. De deciding to follow Jesus was the most important decision I could ever make. And if you're hinting or feeling compelled to respond in that same way, please email us at the same prayer at thefellowship.cc. We'd love the opportunity to discuss with you and minister to you in Jesus' name. Show you the love that He showed us. This morning, Father, we love you. And we are awed and amazed at your love for us. We pray that it would compel us to know you even deeper, more vulnerably, more, uh, more barren before you, more intimately. May it beckon emotion from us that is sustaining and leads to new action that looks more like you and less like our old selves. Father, today would you transform us by the knowledge of who you are and how good you are. And may that all inspire us to apply and to join you, to partner with you, to walk with you as we submit to your spirit and bear fruit of that spirit in self-control. Pray today that your love that saved us 
would inspire someone else. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.